Yeah, I'm going to confess to you. I will not confess this in a recording. So if you put this in the recording, that's entrapment. Good evening and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Martha Sullivan, librarian and member of the Bureau of Balance, and I am here, as <laughs> always, with my co-host. Uh, Sir Romberg, uh, sitting over here with a flagon of mead and ready for this conversation. Ah, uh, see, you referenced our... You referenced our subject for today, and, and you I was referenced Adventure a... Zone. I did, yes. <laughs> uh, have you start, uh, not that it's stuck in either of our heads, but have you started listening to the new arc? Oh yes, I listen to it as it comes out. Cool, yeah, same. Except for the last one, which I struggled. Also, with. same. I gave up on the last one like five episodes in, and never actually went back. But the point is, it is book birthday for the fourth Adventure Zone graphic novel, The Crystal Kingdom, which I am very excited about. So happy book birthday to Taz. Nice. Um, but anyway, we are here tonight. We are beginning our month of Arthur. Uh, we are going to spend the next couple of episodes talking about the Arthurian legend in all of its various pop culture forms. Uh, but before we get into tonight's designated subject, Arthur as history, uh, we are going to tell you a little bit about what is stuck in our heads this week. Uh, Pete, why don't you, I? Pete, explain yourself, actually. <laughs> uh, so my wife was out of town this weekend, which means that I get to watch movies that she is not at all interested in. And at the same time, uh, Criterion Collection, the streaming service channel of Criterion, I guess it's just called Criterion, um, have released a neo-noir set of movies. Uh, so this is like things in their catalog that all fit the bill of neo-noir. They package it as like, you know, July or yeah, it's July. July is neo-noir month. Um, one of the movies in that package is one that film Twitter uh, was sort of going off about and incepted in my brain the idea that, hey, I should watch it. And that film is the 1986 Michael Mann movie Manhunter, uh, based on the novel Red Dragon by Tom Harris, which later became the movie Red Dragon. Um, this is uh, Hannibal, but it's not uh, Anthony Hopkins. It is Brian Cox, and he's barely in it. It also stars William Peterson as Will Graham, uh, Tom Noonan as Francis Dollarhide, Dennis Farina as Jack Crawford. Um, it is a deeply Chicago movie because Michael Mann is sort of a Chicago guy. He got a lot of good accents there. Uh, and it, everything you just said. It's also an absolute 80s uh, Coke dream. The colors are wild. There's so much green and blue and neon. Um, it is a wild ride. Uh, Martha, I know that both your and probably my canonical Hannibal story is Hannibal, um, uh, Hannibal the TV show. Uh, but Manhunter is a fascinating watch, uh, especially because it's early man. It's one of his first. Um, and he, it, it, I don't know if it's good. I know it's not bad. It's definitely interesting. Look, I think all Hannibal stories, except for the prequel Hannibal Rising, are good. So I don't know if the if the if Hannibal the um the movie Hannibal is good. 
that one I could have like I could talk for about six hours about that movie. I we, think because okay, I we don't need to do a think... Hannibal episode. <laughs> I'm in, but also <laughs> um, wait till we wait till we talk about the Hannibal connections in this episode that we're about to talk about. Whoa! Do um, I know that? I'm I'm now excited for whatever this <laughs> this. Uh, foreshadowing oh, yeah. is if you, i was gonna say if you don't know it i'm not gonna spoil the surprise mm, all right um no manhunter is wild um i also enjoy red dragon but there is something particularly unhinged about manhunter that is just like deeply appealing to me agree um and i i also Fox like red has... dragon um philip seymour hoffman great yeah brian has big chaos god energy in this that is pretty delightful Mm -hmm. um yeah i what i really appreciate about all of our pop culture renditions of hannibal lecter is that they are all telling like a completely different story and i really appreciate that the character has that much room for nuance yeah yeah um so despite my quick little intro at the beginning of the episode my second Stuck in my head this week is not actually the new Adventure Zone graphic novel because I haven't started reading it yet. Uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, it is actually a video game that I am a little bit obsessed with called Night in the Woods. Uh, this is a little indie game that came out a couple of years ago to great acclaim. I believe it was initially kickstarted for a Steam release and has since ported to Switch, which, as everybody knows, is my favorite console to experience video games on. Mm-hmm. Uh, In it, you play as May, a 20-year-old girl who has dropped out of college and returned home to her little failing factory town of Possum Springs. Uh, May is also an anthropomorphized cat. All of the characters in this game are anthropomorphized animals in some way. Um, And you, I mean, the story of the game is basically you being home and kind of figuring out what that means for your life and your future. Um, but then also spooky stuff starts happening and it turns into a small town horror mystery. So it is a whole lot of my wheelhouse, uh, all wrapped up in one game. It takes about 10 hours to play, but also, um, has a built in reason for you to play again, because there are certain ways that you can spend your time in the game, like certain people you can choose to spend time with where like if you if you hang out with one person on one day it means you didn't hang out with the other people sure there's so there's a running clock back. situation exactly and your save file is a little notebook that you're filling in with doodles so you get to see how some pages get left blank because you didn't hit those points in the story is this like um, a Majora's Mask situation where um, you can like rewind the story near the end and replay all that? Or is it like you start a new save file and just do a different track? Yeah, you start a new save file and make different choices. Cool, cool. You also get extra bonus features that unlock based on what parts of the game you play. <laughs> nice. Which means I'm really thankful that it's only 10 hours long because basically I finished the game, went, oh my God, that was incredible. And restarted it immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, The art is also wonderful. It takes place like end of October, early November. So it's a very fall kind of game. I could definitely see myself like replaying this game every Halloween season. As you drink your Uh, pumpkin spice latte in a nice flannel. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's great. I highly recommend it. Also, the music slaps. Um, This is definitely one to play with the sound on volume Mm. up. It's great. Nice. 
Uh, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to delve into King Arthur and uh, his historical narrative. Be right back. All right, we are back. So we are kicking off our Arthurian month. And just as a side note, regular listeners will know that we're doing an Arthurian month at all because Pete and I both could not be more excited for the release of The Green Knight at the end of this month. It's going to be so good. God willing. I'm I'm trying to calibrate my expectations such that if it isn't so good, I'll still leave the theater being like, that was fun. But that's I mean, hard to do because I'm like, it's going to be so good. Truly, A24 is batting pretty close to a thousand for me. That's very true. And also, like, you know, Dev Patel and the visuals. I don't know. Dev, pa- Dev Patel also batting a thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, we thought we would start with a look at Arthur as a historical figure. Uh, there has been a... It's not recent because one of the pieces of media that we're going to talk about tonight is almost 20 years old. Oh, good God. <laughs> I was going to say, oh, it's from the 90s. Uh, that makes it almost 25. It's at least 25 years it's old. It's from 2004. Oh, well, the other piece of media we're talking oh. about is from 1995. So. Yeah, okay. So the movie we're talking about is from 2004. <laughs> the, the book that we're talking about is from 95. The most recent piece of media we're consuming <laughs> is 20 years old. But there has... <laughs> I, I would say that this... This need to situate the Arthurian figure in a moment of time has been going on for a very long time. Yes. Um, I did some I did some research into the history of Arthur as a historical figure. Um, the earliest. So basically, he shows up as a folk hero in like fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth century um, Welsh and Latin poetry. Mm hmm. Um, the articles that I was looking at kind of agree that the earliest, like, very specific mention of Arthur in a recognizable way is from, like, the 9th century. I'm looking at 829. Yeah, so, so yeah. 9th century. Yeah. Um, all of which kind of situates Arthur in the 6th century. So, like... He there there end up being very specific references to his participation in the battle of is it Bowden or Baden? It's either Baden or Baden. I don't know what to do with the the A there, but um, which happens in like five thirty five. Yeah. Um, Arthur, as we recognize him, so like all of the components that we kind of accept as being keystones of the Arthurian tradition, like. Merlin, his wife Guinevere, the Knights of the Round Table, um, the Lady of the Lake, Excalibur, um, those start appearing in the 12th century in a work called the Historia Regum Britannae, which was written by Joffrey of Monmouth. Shout out Joffrey of Monmouth! All you English history nerds love him! Yeah, so Joffrey places Arthur in that post-Roman period... 
Um, he also is the one that gives Arthur his history with um, Uther, his father. Um, you know, like I said, the the Knights of the Round Table, Guinevere's wife. Um, and also, when he is killed in battle, the fact that he is spirited away to the mystical island of Avalon... Uh, to arise again in the hour of Britain's greatest need. So a lot of these, a lot of these kind of key components of the narrative don't even actually show up until 700 years after uh, the initial stories of Arthur. Uh, and whether or not there truly was an Arthur uh, is a matter of some debate. Although at this point, I think historians pretty much agree that there probably wasn't. Um, that he was most likely a, a folk hero that eventually got wrapped up into British history. Right. Like at most, he was probably a British or Welsh warlord who fought the Saxons at the end of like during Britain's sort of uh, roughest, the capital B, the Britons roughest time post uh, Roman Britain. Um, right. And then Jeffrey of Monmouth comes along and spins him this great romantic epic story that ties him very closely to the history of Britain. Um, and it is not surprising then that this is the story that gets kind of picked up and celebrated, um, you know, into into the future. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the Welsh have uh, Arthur stolen from them as they have had most everything else stolen from them by the English, um, <laughs> by the is- Anglo-Saxon conquerors themselves. Which is, in and of itself, kind of an interesting thing for us to talk about today. Um, so there, you know, we we have this very traditional vision of Arthur, which I think owes a lot in terms of visuals to, like, crusading knights. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and that's that's because, like, so many of the, the Arthurian romances were written, honestly, post-crusades. They're written in the High Middle Ages, like the Morta Arthurs, written in the High Middle Ages, early Renaissance. So we're talking, like, true, like plate mail tabards and jousts and and you know crusade aesthetics and all the rest of it galahad with his cross uh shield um right so so that is kind of the the folkloric vision of arthur and what we have seen is this desire to return or position arthur to a more quote-unquote historically accurate uh time period based on kind of when his stories first started taking root, uh, which is how we get things like the works we're going to talk about today, which take place in that kind of sixth century um, post-Roman. Uh, like the, the time of the Saxon invasions. Exactly. Uh, so the first, the first thing we're going to talk about today is the 2004 King Arthur movie uh, directed by Antoine Fuqua. And starring Clive Owen as King Arthur, Kira Knightley as Guinevere, Yoan Gruffid as Lancelot, uh, and here's where I'm gonna blow your mind, Pete. I know. Mads, Mads I Mikkelsen know. plays Tristan, and I know. Hugh Dancy plays Galahad. Hugh Dancy, I barely recognize, but Mads, at, like, first off, I'm like weird that we're having Tristan be like a like a warging druid type guy, but also cool, and also Mads. <laughs> uh, truly, this was a movie where if you were white and British and you didn't get in this movie, you probably fired well, your agent. <laughs> well, no, even worse. This had both Ray's and Joel Edgerton, who's basically an honorary Ray, uh, Ray Winstone and Ray Stevenson. True. Um, 
And like, and Joel Edgerton is literally an honorary Ray in that like triplet. Uh, and looks exactly like them. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, and Stephen Delane and Stellan Skarsgård. Like, yes. Whoa, Stannis, my man, is here. <laughs> so in this movie, Arthur plays um, a leader of this band of men who the introduction tells us are Sarmatian. Yeah, which is um silly, but we'll get <laughs> so into that. Basically. They are, they were people that got subsumed by the Roman Empire, um, but they were good enough warriors that the Romans were like, hey, we're going to conscript you for like 15 years. And then if you're alive at the end of that, you'll get your freedom. So the, the story picks up right at the end of Arthur and his knights, their term of service. Well, and Arthur is himself a Roman leading this group of Sarmatian um Recruit is the wrong word. Devshirme. Uh, I thought Arthur was Sarmatian by origin, but had kind of converted to the Roman slash Christian way of thinking. And looks like he's a half British Roman commander, Artorius Castus. Uh, thank you, Wiki, um, for that one. Okay, because I knew I knew that he he is has that Roman connection, but I also thought that. Like, his men feel connected to him because he comes from the same place they do. I thought they were connected to him because he's a good leader and, like, you know, they, 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 they'll follow him to the ends of the earth because, you know, he's, he's done so good to them during that 15, 20 year period, yada, yada, yada. Um, but Regardless, anyway, the point, yeah. the point is kind of that Arthur, Arthur feels allegiance to Rome and then Rome betrays him super hard and says, Ooh, you guys thought you were free. Do this one last thing for us and then you'll go free. And all of his knights are like, mm, if we didn't love you so much, Arthur, mm-hmm. which honestly is a good Antoine Fuqua film of just like, ah, the one last job we're roped in for one final go. Yes. So they embark on a quest to, uh, go rescue a bishop or question? like a, a young some Roman patrician well, who will become a bishop or something. Yeah. So it gets a little going, fuzzy in the second act. Yeah, they're going basically they're going to rescue some upper class Roman people that are buried in the uh, the countryside in an area that's about to be overrun with Saxons. Um on the way, they pick up Kira Knightley, a Wodish woman who has been uh, walled up by a bunch of fanatic Christians. Uh, in the meantime, and she proceeds to uh, convince or try to convince Arthur that his place is actually on the Isle of Britain, leading the Welsh people, or not Welsh, the Britons, yes, against the Saxon invasion. Um, because surprise, he has their blood in him as well. Um, those of the band that survive the confrontation with the Saxons at the end uh, live to see Arthur and Guinevere get married, uniting uh, his ideals with the people of Britain and presumably going on to develop Britain into the land that we recognize today. Stephen Delane as Merlin shows up occasionally to glower menacingly from the tree line. Uh, Kira Knightley or Guinevere rather does not actually bone down with Lancelot, who dies tragically in battle. They just has some smoldering looks every now and then. Yes. Um, and yeah, everything is very dirty. 
<laughs> and sometimes people show up with woe tattoos. Uh, I like this movie a lot. I think it's a great fun time. Um, the only thing that is kind of icky for me now as an adult human is that Keira Knightley was 19 when she made this movie and Clive Owen is almost 20 years older than she is. That's a little rough. That's also very Hollywood. Like, not not to excuse it, but... Yeah, so that was... That was rough. Yeah. Um, but I do tend to judge Arthurian stories on how they treat Guinevere. Mm. Um, and in this one, I think she's fun. I enjoy her quite a bit. I assume you've seen this movie before. No, this was my first time <gasps> seeing it. Are you joking? I am not joking. How did you, how did you miss this? Uh, how, how, did a... I, how did I miss this? Especially when for the uh, sci-fi club convention that our high school put on, we had this as this poster as part of the like promotional materials for said convention. Yeah, good question. I don't know. I just never saw it. <laughs> um, I like it came out and I just missed it. And then I just never thought about it. Until a couple months ago, honestly, I was like, oh, yeah, I should watch that. Put it on my I should watch that list. Um, and then didn't do anything about that until you assigned it. And I was excited when you assigned it. Um, I enjoyed, you think? Yeah, I, I enjoyed it as a fun fantasy action film. I, I was telling you off mic that when this movie started with like, we're basically doing a Dev Shermay with the Sarmatians. I was like, uh, this is really rough on the we're doing a historical Arthur thing. Um, this movie does have very, like, capital V, capital S, very serious prologue text about how this is, like, a based true... on historical findings. And then the very first scene <laughs> is something that did not happen. Like, the Romans did not, like, I, I keep saying Dev Shermay, that's what the um, the Ottoman Empire did to get the Janissaries. They would go to all the Christian towns in the Balkans and collect a number of, of uh, boy children and um, forcibly recruit them into the Janissary Corps. That's called the Dev Shermay. Um, which is what the Romans were doing here with the Sarmatians and is also 100% not a thing that happened. So <laughs> so when like when the introductory text is like, this is real, and then the first thing is like a thing that wasn't real, I'm just like, okay. Um, and then we're calling the Picts Wodes. Uh, Wode is the blue paint that they wear. They were actually Picts. Uh, there were a lot of things. Say, that felt like derogatory. Yes? I, I Honestly, it's like, was it derogatory or was it like, listen no one involved knows the actual like we've heard the term woad people will understand that no one's heard of a picked before so just carry on call him a woad um it's wild that people that it by your theory people would think that woad is easier to recognize <laughs> than, than picked, picked. <laughs> i mean right fair so about 15 minutes in i had the the realization that like oh this isn't trying to be a serious history movie like a movie like Gladiator might aspire to be. Um, this is a fantasy action film that pretends to be a serious history movie. Cool. Now that I'm in the proper gear to watch this film, I had a good time. Uh, once I think this movie is exactly as serious as Gladiator. This movie takes itself exactly as seriously as Gladiator does. Gladiator has a better grasp of the history, if only because it's just not doing as much with it i guess like you know gladiator Fair. has like three like the the first big set piece battle against the macromoni like happened did it happen like that probably not but who cares like marcus Aurelius beat the macromoni it's fine uh commodus died uh he was murdered by his wrestling coach 
So that's close enough. Um, this well, is just doing a lot. This movie ends with the Battle of Baden, which people pretty much agree happened. Did it happen like this? IDK. D- uh, definitely not. <laughs> just just going to go with no. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, like I said, once I got myself into the proper gear for watching this film, I enjoyed it immensely. Um, Hans Zimmer did the soundtrack, so, you know, and, and it's a Jerry Bruckheimer production from the mid-aughts. So True. it's it's exactly what you expect those kinds of movies to be like. Well, and this is definitely Keira Knightley at the height of her Pirates of the Caribbean power. There's that. And as I uh, was mentioning earlier, I love Ray. Uh, which one? I love Ray Stevenson. Um, and Mads Mikkelsen, like seeing seeing all the Rays and honorary Rays together, and all the rest of them, I'm like, this is a fun outing of like English. I don't know. They're like they're old lads, right? Like, like they all look like boxers. Yes. Um, but yeah, I I think, and we will we'll get into this more. I think when we talk about your your homework, but. I do think it's interesting that even even accounts that claim to be historical about Arthur all contain some measure of mysticism. Like it's almost impossible to fully separate the magic of the Arthur story from like any kind of historical context. So I think any sort of Arthur story automatically becomes a little bit fantasy, which also I think gives people liberties to play around with it. Right. Like if you're doing an Arthur story and you're not having a Merlin, everyone is going to be shouting like, where's Merlin? And if you're going to do a hard, serious, realistic version, then your Merlin is going to be like a druid who has herbs and stuff. But if you're going to do herbs and stuff, then yeah, you get some fun berserkers. You get like, and this is not what this movie did, but like you could do crazy, you know, drug induced streams and vision quests and stuff. Like there's a lot, as you say, that you can play around the edges with, um, once you introduce, like, yeah, we got druids here. We got, you know, a, a, a Excalibur. Like, it's not a magic sword, but it's a, a, you know, a potent blade that everyone fears, yada, yada, yada. Well, and also, I think that... I think it's really hard for someone to make a version of Arthur that is not at least partially folktale. Right, Arthur and Robin Hood are, like, in the same camp I was, of... I was truly just thinking about Robin Hood. <laughs> um, but which I which I also think means people may end up feeling a little loosey... Like, feeling like they can get a little loosey-goosey with the historical details, because it's like, well, it feels true. And I think that feeling of truth for a character like Arthur is frequently more important than necessarily getting all the history right. To paraphrase Stephen Colbert from like 15 years ago, there's fact and then there's truthiness. And Arthur is a truthiness character rather than a factual character. Yeah, I think that he ends up being a character that we just want to believe so badly in. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Clive Owen in that role then in this? I I really enjoyed him. This is part of my struggle because part of me was like, man, I wish they'd cast him younger so that it wouldn't feel kind of as icky as it does with Kira Knightley. But on the other hand, I think Clive Owen is charismatic enough that I totally believed the devotion that his peop- that his men had to him. Yeah. Like, he is he is very self-sacrificing. He is very like I'm going to do the thing that is right um even when it is not the thing that I want. And 
I am not going to ask anybody to follow me to do that, but they're going to anyway because that's how much they love him. Right. I I agree that he was well cast. This was at the point where like Hollywood was trying to make Clive Owen like a, a conventional leading man, and he just generally does not have that energy. But also, he's not bringing that to this. He's he's playing a very non-conventional leading man, considering that the movie is called King Arthur and is ostensibly about him. Yeah, um, my feeling about Clive Owen, who is a an actor that I I really love same. watching, I think he's a little too melancholy to mm-hmm. really be to have had like the career that Gerard Butler tried to have for a while. I, um, his like he's a. He's a little too sad just in sort of his seeming, which means that he's great in a role like this or a role like Children of Men. I was going to say, I think hands down his best role is Children of Men because him being like a sad sack sort of dried up guy in, a, in the world, end of the world is like perfect for him. Well, he's also the only part of Sin City that I like for the same reason. Oh, right. Yeah, he is in Sin City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Put upon. He needs to be put upon. Yeah, and just sort of, like, you can, he, it feels like he's carrying the weight of the world, mm-hmm. which for a character like Arthur, who I think in whatever incarnation truly believes that he is carrying the weight of the world, like, that works. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially in Arthur like this, who's at sort of, who's not at the, he's not a fresh young hero in this movie. He's been doing this for a while. He's been literally leading this band of uh, fake Sarmatian knights for like 20 15 20 years so like he you know you were complaining about the the outrageous age disconnect between Kira knightley and arthur but also if we're gonna have guinevere be like a 20 year old arthur would have been if he was leading troops for 20 years he would have been 45 you know maybe maybe okay. 40 at the outset but because it's possible that a, a roman you know would have risen up the ranks enough to be leading troops at 20 but um, and yeah, I also thought it was kind of refreshing that this is not really an or well, this is in some ways an origin story of Arthur, but it's not like we we get the sword in the stone moment in an interesting <laughs> flashback. I thought that was so silly. I, right? I mean, I, it's it's almost almost kind of despite itself yeah. or in spite of itself, like. Well, fine, I, I guess we have to do this because it's still Arthur. I, I just laughed out loud when it happened. I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Um, but yeah, this is not a young king. This is a a war leader who accepts the mantle of king as a fully formed human adult rather than a child who just pulled a sword out of the st- Sword out of the rock. Um, yeah, I dig this movie. I and I will say, like, as as much as I laughed and and made fun of that, like, sword in the stone scene, I'm actually a sucker for media that does things like, you know, the story is this way. Um, sorry, like, like you, like the mythos is the sword in the stone. You pull it out, but actually, it was just a, a young kid who pulled the store, sword out of his dad's grave and then you the audience can fill in the gaps of like ah over hundreds of years this became a whole mythos thing um i'm a huge fan of nonsense like how how the story builds and grows as it tumbles down through the ages and goes from 
a kid in desperation taking out his dad's sword from the grave to being like, this is the sword that marks who's the king and pulling it out is that marker. Um, well, and that I just... was so, yeah, that was so very clearly a people expect to have this as part of the story. So we have to figure out how to do it. Right, right. Deeply silly that the solution is uh, we're marking the graves of these warriors with swords. Because I'm looking at that being like, first off, they're all like on fire for some reason. The reason is it looks cool, uh, which I, I, I respect. Correct. Like, I mean, again, fantasy action movie. It looks cool. Sounds good. Um, the other thing I kept thinking was like, that's a lot of valuable swords. You're just like sticking in the ground to rust. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no one's like coming around two days later being like, all right, cool. Who wants a sword? Uh, well, do we want to move on to your book and then we sure. can talk about them both? Uh, kind of in context. Yes. Um, so I assigned the 1995 book The Winter King by Bernard Cornwell. Uh, this is the first in a trilogy known as the Warlord Chronicles that is a quote-unquote hard historical version of the Arthurian myth. Um, it is narrated by Durful Cadern, a, um, a knight of Arthur uh, who... In the it's it's a frame story because of course it is. Uh, in the frame story, he is an old monk uh, converted to Christianity and writing the story of Arthur for um, a queen who I think is a gray Egwene, but I also Egwene Egwene they all kind of blur at some point. There's so many Egwenes Egwenes Elaines that uh, I can never keep them straight. Um, so the frame story is that. This old man, now a Christian monk, is recalling the story of Arthur, writing it down, um, and his own life during that time period. Uh, so this book focuses on um, sort of Arthur's rise to power and uniting the uh, various warring tribes and countries in um, Britain, which is basically Cornwall and Wales, uh, into a single confederation to fight the invading Saxons. Uh, he is a warlord who is uh, merely a regent for his nephew Mordred. Um, Eagle-eared viewers might recognize Mordred as a important name in the Arthurian mythos. Uh, and the bastards, uh, Arthur is the bastard son of Uther. Um, we're doing a lot of, ah, yes, this is the historical version of these things you know. So, like, Guinevere shows up. Her, Arthur's infatuation with her ruins a possible marriage alliance between two important kingdoms. Um, we have a lot, a lot, a lot of Christian versus Druid uh, conflict because that would have been happening during the time, maybe. Um... We have Merlin as a very powerful druid. We have uh, uh, Nimui or Nimue uh, as a, another very important and powerful druid. Um, and we have, uh, you know, Lancelot shows up. He's a knight from uh, Amorica, which is France. Or I guess he's not from Amorica. He's from some other place. It's in France. Um, ditto with Gwen uh, uh, Galahad. Um <sighs> It's an interesting book. I was, I am a sucker for the historical read, and I thought this was a far more capital H historical work than uh, Anton Fuqua's film. Um, Bernard Cornwall is famous for having written like the Sharp series, uh, 
essay, uh, Richard Sharp during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so he's a real, like, history nerd's history nerd. If you wiki him, he looks exactly like what you think a British, like, historical fiction author might look like, complete with the pipe sticking out of his mouth. Um, and so on the one hand, a lot of that, I'm all for it. On the other hand, this was a fan like it's it's a fantasy book and it was published in 1995 around the same time that George R. R. Martin was coming out with um uh, Song of Ice and Fire and it falls into a lot of the exact same pitfalls which is horrific sexual violence against women to show that this is a gritty and realistic story in a bad time um that part got very old very quickly Martha you're going to have a lot more to say on that in a moment um yeah there like I I think we both listened to it on audiobook. I like the audiobook narrator, which is always an important thing for me. Um, also, we're both very glad that we listened to it on audiobook because this is one of those everyone is Welsh or Cornish, so we're dealing with a lot of na names with lots of Ys and Ds in them. A lot of uh, double Ds. <laughs> lots of, uh... When, when you hear it in the audiobook and then you look on the wiki, you're like, oh, that's how that's spelled? Huh. Glad I listened to it instead of read it. Um, so, yeah, go ahead, uh, lay it on me. I know this was not your favorite homework of all time. Yeah, I struggled with this one. Uh, particularly, so I, I believe I said this just a short while ago, I tend to judge, like, my, my relationship with Arthurian stories depends very, very heavily on how the women of the story are treated. Uh, particularly since, um... There's really no consistent characterization for a lot of these women, mm -hmm. like Galadriel, Morgan Le Fay. Mm, try that one Nick again. Away. Like these are all you... these are all characters that pop up. A you lot. said Galadriel, and you meant Guinevere. Oh, sorry. Cool. I did mean I did mean <laughs> Guinevere. Yes. Um, but yeah, like these are all women that pop up a lot in the Arthurian stories, but they end up being used basically however the author needs to. Mm -hmm. So like the, there is typically a constant of Guinevere and Lancelot having an affair like that happens pretty frequently. Um, but I have seen Guinevere used as a tool for Christianity. I have seen her used as a tool for paganism. Like in this, in this story, she is, you know, on the side of the, the Druids trying to make sure that Arthur doesn't stray too far from that path. In this one, it's um, actually even weirder because, like, she's a pagan, but she's, like, an Isis follower, which isn't a proper religion of Britain. So she supports the Druids, but not, like, there's there's conflict within the pagans, which is kind of an interesting subplot. Anyway, continue. Um, but, yeah, so she, she is frequently used as a tool. So then I'm always kind of judging the story about, like, well, how much agency are you giving this tool? Um, the kind of, for a very long time, the pinnacle of sort of quote unquote feminist Arthurian stories was the Miss of Avalon by Marion Zimmer Bradley, which is a book that a lot of people now have a very complicated relationship to myself included. Um, after, um, in 2014, Zimmer Bradley's daughter, um, came out with allegations against her parents of pedophilia. Uh, apparently for a very long time, um, Marion Zimmer Bradley's husband abused uh, children, which she not only was aware of, but enabled. So finding that out, I think complicated the world's relationship to this book, which mm -hmm. is otherwise 
a very rich um, rendition of the Arthurian story that is centered on the centered on the women of the story. And disclosure, so main... I had never even heard of the Winter King until doing research for this episode. I probably would have assigned the Miss of Avalon if not for all those allegations and not wanting to, you know, have that be our actual homework. It's it, it's hard because I read that book and I deeply, deeply loved it. The point of view character is Morgan, is Morgan Le Fay, uh, who in this, in that particular story, ends up becoming a priestess um, on the Isle of Avalon. Um, and in that, Guinevere is positioned very much, she comes from a nunnery, she is positioned very much in opposition to the women of the Isle. And the... Arthur basically becomes a leverage point between these two faiths. Oh, so Guinevere's the Christian versus the your Morgans and your uh, Nimues and your correct uh, what, whatever other like pagan druids you're you're thrown in the mix. Correct. Um, so yeah, like I said, I tend to judge Arthurian stories by how by what happens with Guinevere, and frankly, didn't love this Guinevere. Um, she she has very strong shades of like capital SFC, like strong female character. Um, but also doesn't have a whole lot of personality outside of trying to make sure Arthur stays a pagan. I, uh, for a lot of this book, I was pretty unimpressed with Guinevere as well, but there were a couple scenes where I thought that she was being shaded a little more complexly. Uh, there's a lot of, like, not in a positive way, but in a, like, oh, you're not a flat character. There's lots of talk about how, like, she likes pretty things. Like, she doesn't like that she's pregnant because then she's not, she doesn't think that she's pretty. Um, at, like, Arthur tries to innate, like, bring up the worst in his kingdom by making things better. She would rather banish the worst in the kingdom and just be surrounded by flowers. And it's like, that's not a... um. That's not a positive read on the character at all, but it's a complex read on the character. But that that, that being said, I am not like I agree with you one hundred percent that this is not a, a Guinevere's finest hour kind of book. Well, and for me, the most egregious figure in this book, like the 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 character that I got the most upset about, is Nimue. Mm -hmm. Um. So Nimue is raped and mutilated by an invading army. Um, and spends the rest of the book struggling with her sanity. And the way that this book treats people that are insane is very, very cruel. Um, and I'm sure that somewhere there is an argument of like, oh, historical accuracy, blah, blah, blah. Um, don't love it. Mm -hmm. Don't love watching this woman be referred to as mad, exiled onto an island, get taken advantage of. Like, she... Nimue is not treated well by this story and is not treated kindly, ultimately, by the narrator who presumes to be in love with her. I don't disagree with anything you said, but I also think that Nimue, in a way, is the most powerful female character in this book because she is a 
she is and is known to be a potent druid. So sure. there, are, there are scenes where she is doing quote unquote magic and it's it's your classic. Um, it's almost like the inverse of the Salem witch trials where it's like this 17 year old girl is like going into fits and causing a scene in the middle of like a giant council of war. And everyone pays attention to her, listens to her, is terrified of her, and thinks she's a conduit to the gods. Um, which is a, like, because we, the audience, and the narrator have lampshaded earlier that, like, all of this druid stuff is, like, kind of, sort of? Th there's a good discussion of, like, look, it's not a joke because we have to do all this nonsense to be a conduit to the gods, but, like, to the un like to the initiated... It's just, like, lamb's blood and a bat in my hair. Like, it's not... Like, magic Magic is very much a, you know, conjurer of cheap trick kind of thing. So, no, like, the audience knowing that and, and seeing Nimue, like, command this council of men, like, does give her power in a way outside the normal structure. Um, that being said, not super great that, like, her entire framing is, like, want to suffer the three wounds, which is... A bodily disfigurement, rape, and madness. Well, and also, she achieves her power by sleeping with Merlin. Like, there is still sort of a fundamental... That That, um, that, that is certainly the she, basis of her power. She trades her... She is trading on her femininity for power. And this is where we get into a... I, like, within the context of the story, I don't think... Like... Everything that happens to her is believable. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean I want to read about it. Totally. Um, and also, I think that the the author is taking care to show you how her power is derived, like how she is, um, how she uses her body, how she trades on her femininity to get the power that she has. Um, Up to a point, like like I. I, I would again say, like, she, the foundation of her power is that, but once she achieves that foundation, I think a lot of it is her own, um, you know, like, at, like, at that point, like, her reputation becomes her own reputation. Like, she, she could never have gotten there without, uh, everything you're saying, you know, like, without True, having been, like, I Merlin's guess, lover and all the rest. I guess, ultimately, my objection is that it is still the author who is choosing what to spend time. Yes emphasizing yes like he the, bernard cornwell is the one who decided i would like to tell a story about a woman who is driven mad by being raped and mutilated like yeah. that's a choice that he made um and for a character who you know for all of this the story's framing in like historical accuracy for a character that does not really have a historical story to tell. So that's an additional choice that he made that that was the way that he wanted to use this character. And not to defend this, but going back to the previous uh, point, uh, this being a mid nineties fantasy, um, I think that was just very much in fashion of just like, look, we're going to make psychologically complex characters and we're going to present the horrors of the quote unquote middle ages at this point, the, the early dark ages um via showing how much uh you know sexual assault and violence and just casual horribleness there was but because i'm going to make a psychologically complex book i'm going to focus on the psychological trauma of all those things um and when you like when all those things get added together it's like cool 
this is a very groundbreaking book in the 90s, I guess, because it's ground that has not been trod. But also, you're making some choices, and right now in 2021, it feels exhausting and quasi-exploitative and not choices that we would necessarily be making now. Um, I'd like to pivot a little bit mm -hmm. uh, to talk about the role that Arthur plays in this story. <laughs> um, because I, I think that it is interesting that this is an Arthurian story that is not, at the end of the day, really about Arthur. Mm -hmm. But it is more about the impact that Arthur has on the story and the other characters. Like, Arthur in this story is a force Wherever he goes, he, like, changes the warp and weft of the world just by existing. First off, A plus phrase. Um. <laughs> I definitely stole that from somewhere. <laughs> uh, he's, um, he, he, he's the Poochie character, by which I mean, whenever Poochie's not on screen, all the other characters have to be asking, where's Poochie? But, uh, that, yeah, yeah, and it's it's about it's about the the impact that he has on these characters and this world. And he doesn't really have to be on screen for most of the story for that. And almost like when he does show up, I was a little bit like, Ugh, I don't know that I want to spend any time with you. <laughs> oh, you, um, you, you didn't, you did fair. not think, you did not think of him as the, as the Clive Owen. I, I liked him in this. I thought he was in, I thought no, it was very I did, interesting. I did too. There were moments where he comes across as a little more of a meathead than I kind of wanted him to be. Um, I, there are moments, particularly in the first half, where it's a little bit like, okay, but how did you, how did you get to where you are? I think that kind of irons itself out the more present he becomes in the story. Mm -hmm. But there are definitely scenes in the beginning where it's like, oh, it feels like this guy is a leader because other people decided he should be. Mm, fair, fair. I, I um, liked him because like, it's funny you thought of him as a meathead because I'm like compared to all the other men around him, he is an intellectual other than like Merlin because and I guess Durful can read, Merlin can oh, yeah. read, Arthur can probably read. End of literate people in the group. <laughs> <laughs> and there are there are definitely you definitely see his head for strategy the more that the book plays out. Mm -hmm. um, um. So I. I laughed a lot when I saw your you, you emailed me about that being like I'm four hours in and Arthur hasn't shown up yet. What is going on? Um, is well, and actually he shows up at about five hours. I so. I, I had a, I'd already gotten to the point where he showed up, but I didn't know what the timestamp was. So I didn't want to be like, ah, just wait another hour. Um, But I, I thought that was a very interesting like first off, it's a totally fair critique. But it's also an interesting critique, because in a lot of Arthurian stories, including some of the original, like, stories where Arthur shows up, he's kind of a background character. Um, one of the first, and, and I was talking about this off-air, first off, disclaimer, I'm gonna say a lot of Welsh words, I'm probably not gonna say them correctly. So, with that out of the way, um, one of the earliest folk stories that he shows up in is uh, the Mabinogion, which is a ancient work of Welsh um, prose stories and is like basically the Welsh um, collection of of myths and legends. Um, he shows up in a uh, one of the classic stories in it called Colfwich uh, and Owen, um, which is also the basis of Baron and Luthien, one of the J.R.R. Tolkien stories. Uh, the Mabinogion is the basis is kind of sort of the basis for the Silmarillion. Sidebar over. Um, and in Colfitch and Owen, he's literally Colfitch's like 
co- cousin or uncle or something. And it's like, oh, you got a problem? I don't know. Go see your cousin Arthur. He's a king over there. He might help you out. And then, like, Colvin shows up. He's like, Arthur's like, yeah, I'll help you out. Here's, like, a sword or something. I don't know. Go have fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not, I'm uh, absolutely bastardizing that. But, you know, like, he's in the story, but he's in the story as a, like, listen, we all know Arthur, right? Cool. He's here for his two-minute cameo. Then he goes away. Um, that's also true in things like so many of, like, the Galahad stories and the Lancelot stories and, uh, the thing we're super excited for, the Green Knight, um, where, like, Gawain is a knight of the round table and Arthur shows up for his cameo at the beginning and then we move away from Arthur and we follow Gawain, um... So, like, while we all know the Arthur story and there are lots of stories about Arthur, there's also a lot of stories where Arthur is, like, doing his job as, like, you know, setting the scene, being the cameo, being the cool guy with the the Camelot and the round table and all the rest. And then we follow the adventures of someone else. Yeah, I mean, it, it in that way, it does feel very traditional um, and is actually kind of interesting when we, we talk about Arthur's history um, it is impossible in a lot of these stories, or I think the point of a lot of these stories rather is how Arthur affected history, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of the, the theme of this book is how by Arthur's existence, he's affecting alliances and influencing strategy like people are planning around the fact that he exists yes that is definitely true um and his his armed cavalry or his armored cavalry um this also much like the the movie is a britain has left or uh, sorry rome has left britain but there are still the remnants of you know the roman the roman presence is still felt even if it's just ruined villas and one super cool like armor like suit of armor and mm-hmm. a couple a couple soldiers who like were cast offs from the collapsing Roman army um who who you know found their way to Arthur's war band and and joined up with him because what else are you going to do mm-hmm. so how do we how do we look at these two pieces as sort of being indicative of telling the Arthur story through the lens of actual history. One of the things that we didn't really touch on, but I think pops up frequently in this kind of story is the conflict between Christianity and these sort of foundational religions and faiths of Britain. I, so it will not surprise you that I loved all the talk of the Mithras cult in, uh, the winter King. Uh, Mithras was a famous, uh, god that was very popular in the roman army and um uh, the main character dervil and many other people are inducted into his cult um and i'm always here for mystery cult ceremonies and induct like indoctrinations and and also just mithras references he's super cool (laughs) (laughs) um i i really like this time period because there is the conflict between paganism and christianity i think that it's likely anachronistic uh that the the druids are such a force in this book um as they do mention a few times uh the romans had some issues with the druids and killed a lot of them (laughs) um so uh like but but that aside 
there's a lot of conflict happening during this time, and part of it is the religious conflict. Um, which I think... I guess, I guess the movie also includes that a little, where we've got, like, the patrician who's going to be a bishop, and then Merlin is a, a druid, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the movie barely goes into it, other than, like, Arthur feels kind of betrayed by the Roman church. Like, it's all about the Pope and the Roman church. Um, well, and his his men keep talking about, like, your god. Your uh, god sucks. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, I guess he is, he is explicitly and specifically Christian in the movie. Also think going back to the a historicalness of it i laughed a lot when it's like ah oh, yes the pope he's such a powerhouse i'll do what he says no in the 600s no one cared the pope was the bishop of rome who cares there's like eight other bishops they're all cool <laughs> <laughs> um so but but like i mean you're right like that was definitely much more of that like the differences were there but it wasn't conflict in the same way whereas in this book it is like in some cases all out war between mm -hmm. the pagans and the Christians. Well, and in these, and then also in the Mists of Avalon, Arthur ends up being a, like a crux point between paganism and Christianity. Mm -hmm. Like, part of the story is trying to lean on him to move one way or the other. Right. Um, in order to protect the future of Britain. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah, that is just, it's a, it's another thing where depending on what kind of story you're trying to tell using the Arthurian legend is like, how is he going to feel about the, it, the <laughs> religion of his country? Is he already a Christian or is he a, uh, I refuse to tell you what faith I believe in, or is he a, a devoted pagan, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you want to get into this now, and it's totally fair if you don't. Um, but I think I mentioned off air, it's fascinating that Arthur is a Breton with a, uh, with an O, like he's, he's Welsh, uh, Armorica is mentioned in, uh, the Winter King, and that is the, the current region of Brittany in France, uh, so basically you've got Wales, Wales, Cornwall, and Brittany are all Britonic regions, and that's where Arthur hails from, and in... Uh, both of these works, uh, he is fighting the Saxons, who are the invading barbarian horde, uh, who inevitably, as we know from history, successfully uh, defeat everyone, and then themselves are defeated by the Normans, uh, you know, 400 years later. Uh, so, is there something to it that, like, nowadays, like, the English, the Angles, uh, and the Saxons have absolutely, totally co-opted the Arthur legend for their own? Um... Do we think that might be because they themselves were conquered by the Normans? And so therefore they sort of like took hold of this idea of like, ah, yes, a great king of the ancient days who fought against an invading force uh, and will one day come back and save us all. Um, this is also where I plug we didn't assign Once and Future by Kieran Gillen and Dan Mora, which has the my favorite twist on the Arthurian legend, which I won't spoil. <laughs> Uh, or, uh, sorry, like, on, on, on Arthur himself, which I won't spoil. Um, I know I threw a lot of words at you right that right now, and I prefaced it with, I don't know if you want to get into it at this moment, so... I was gonna say, I'm having a little bit of trouble, so, I'm having a little bit of trouble parsing what your question was. So, I don't know how much of a question it is so much as a topic to throw at you, which is, it's fascinating that Arthur is a traditional Britonic 
folk hero who then got co-opted by the Anglo-Saxons, a.k.a. the very people whom he fought against. Um, Well, And is now like a British folk hero. I think that is very much in keeping with the way that the Anglo-Saxon folk hero tradition kind of picks up whatever they want. (laughs) Also, like, name one Anglo-Saxon folk hero. (laughs) Well, and also, I think it is, it's, you know, looking at it through that lens, the, the Arthur that typically springs to our mind is a very medieval Arthur rather than being a very... Dark Ages post-Rome, yeah. Right, yeah. like, they they not only picked up the Arthurian legend, but they subsumed it and kind of, like, we, we talk well, about I'm, it. I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to go one step further. The Anglo-Saxons didn't pick it up. The Normans picked it up with, like, like the Mort to Arthur is, like, sort of the foundational text, I think, for so many of, you know, like, uh, uh, T.S. Eliot, or T.S. Eliot, no, T.H. White's Once in Future king mm-hmm. did i just totally screw up his name um no you're good okay uh yeah th white uh once in future king like that's based on Morta arthur uh you mentioned um joffrey of, of uh uh mormonth um those are like norman writers so they're coming in with like a french chivalric sensibility and throwing that on top of everything else so like our sense of Arthur is like an absolute hodgepodge blender of everything from Mabagonian, uh, uh, Mabinogian era Wales to you know fourteenth century Norman English fighting the Hundred Years' War to twentieth century uh, English fighting World War Two. Mm-hmm. I don't really have a follow-up to that one. Fair enough. I Again, I just sort of threw a lot at the wall. No, but I, I think that there's... I mean, I don't think any of it was incorrect. I also am not fully up on the nuances between, like, Normans and Anglo-Saxons. And, like, all of that just start, starts to on sound the, like word salad to me. On, on the one hand, they're all just Vikings, so who cares? But on the other hand, you have invaders... Mm-hmm who 400 years later get invaded. And so that's kind of interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's all I got. I feel like we're going out on a bit of a down note because I just sort of spiraled out into like, like I have all these like weird thoughts on historical Arthur, but they're all like very loosely, tenuously connected. So. Well, and you threw me a little bit for a loop by bringing up Once in Future, which is not historical Arthur at all. No, no, and, and neither is is like is the Morta Arthur. So right. <laughs> so yeah, we are. So we're setting the table uh, for our our month of Arthur and our next. Speaking month, of Once in Future, are we talking about Once in Future? No, but um, should I just spoil one of our homeworks? Oh, well, so next episode, we'll be talking about um, Arthur as comedy. Uh, And for that, we have selected two movies out of a much smaller pool uh, than Arthur as history. Um, 
for next time, we will be watching Disney's animated uh, The Sword in the Stone. Which is based on the first section of Once in Future. That's, that was the connection. You keep saying Once in Future, and I'm thinking about the comic. Sorry, the, the Once in Future King. Um, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, I also just reserved the, or I just pre-ordered the next issue of Once in Future, so I've got it kind of on my mind. Gonna be so good. Um, but then we are also assigning the perennial comedic classic, Monty Python's The Holy Grail. The Grail. I, I will um, uh, apologize in advance and promise to not just make it mostly quoting that movie. Quotes are boring because people will have watched the movie before our before our probably show. Probably like 600 times before the show because probably people watching the show have grown up in some amount of nerd culture and nerd culture loves that movie. Which we will get into on our next episode. Mm. Until then, Pete, if people wanted to get some good, good content from you outside of our podcast, where could they find you to do that? Yes, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics, pop culture, and occasionally um, sending links to the Instagram pictures that I'm posting of my new pug puppy. Um, I don't actually post that many pictures of him, even though he's very cute and photogenic. Uh, and also looks like an absolute goblin when he's sitting in your lap chewing on a thing with his ears flat back and his eyes bugged out. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll post one of those. <laughs> he's extremely cute. Yes, he is a very photogenic dog, including in the pictures I posted that were specifically anti-photogenic. <laughs> Uh, you can find me on all the places at Magical Martha. Uh, I recently acquired a Pillow Fort account, uh, which, if you're not familiar with Pillow Fort, is basically I've Tumblr. I've literally ex- never heard of Pillow Fort. Uh, it is Tumblr, except it is privately funded, so they hmm. have porn there. Great. I was yes. going to make a joke about that, and I'm glad it wasn't a joke, just merely what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty quiet there so far. Um, they do have a function where you can either allow not safe for work posts to show up on your dashboard or not, which sure. means that you can browse at work or at home. <laughs> safely. I was going to say, why do you even have that function if the people there are like the, the folks from Tumblr who are like, we want the NSFW. But you do raise a good point that sometimes you're at your work account and sometimes you're at your home account. Listen, my Twitter account is becoming increasingly unsafe to browse when I'm at work. So, you know, (laughs) Um, you can follow the podcast on all the places at DYDYH podcast. You can follow our sister show, Love Ya, which is the podcast I do with Pete's wife, Marin, that releases on alternating Wednesdays from this one on the same feed where we watch a young adult or uh, adult rom-com and then dissect it in depth. Our last episode was actually a really great place to jump on that if you haven't been listening because we do a quick, for our 50th episode, we do a quick summary of our favorite movies, talk about all of the ways in which uh, life is a rich tapestry and how we all have different opinions on what makes a good movie. (laughs) It is uh, very entertaining that you had one adult rom-com and Maren had one teen rom-com on uh, your top. What did you do, five? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that was a... The episode was a perfect encapsulation of the two of your interests as people, so it's a good entry point for anyone. Yes. <laughs> also, 50 episodes. Pew, 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 pew. Hooray. Uh, unlike this one, which is at 108 as of this episode. Uh, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did that count. 
cool. I go by the numbering of our Google Docs. It's accurate, so yeah. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I write where... a tiny letter newsletter. I haven't really since like January. So where can we know, find the show? Not... I said all the places at DIY no. Podcast. Great, there we go. I was not paying and attention. SoundCloud and whatever podcatcher you're using to listen to us right now. Cool. Uh, the next thing I'm going to say is a joke. What are we doing next episode? Uh, we already talked about that. <laughs> yep, uh, this is where I get yanked I did off stage. It out of order. <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, we hope that you are enjoying our theme months as much as we are. Uh, we will see you in a couple of weeks, and until then, enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed. Would you like to know how close I was to saying love you there? Uh, I had a bit of a coin toss when you paused for a long time. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I was going to be like, do you need me to shout off stage what the line is or uh, what's going on Not here? Good. <laughs> <laughs>